0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Pueblo, Colorado, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Pueblo. Plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Pueblo. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am your host, James Orr, and today we have a really exciting class because everybody knows that if you put 25% down after buying an owner-occupant property and you're trying to acquire 10 properties total, nine rental properties, everybody knows that putting 25% down is way better than utilizing the nomad strategy of buying an owner-occupant property moving in, living there for at least a year until you save up to buy the next property, then buy the next property, move out of the other one, convert that to a rental, and repeat that process until you have one owner-occupant property and nine rentals. Everybody knows that 25% down is better. Or is it? That's what we're going to find out today. Today we're going to find out, is it better to put 25% down and buy nine rental properties, or Is it better to do the nomad strategy and buy 5% down? And in both cases, we're going to buy an owner-occupant property first. When we put 25% down, we're going to buy the owner-occupant property, and we are going to live there forever. We're going to put 5% down. We're going to move into a property. You're going to live there forever. And then we're going to start saving up for 25% down and buying as many 25% down properties as we can, maximum of nine. Or we're going to do this nomad strategy, save up 5%, move in there, live there, and then once we save up our next 5%, we're going to buy the next 5% down property and do this. You would think to yourself that, hey, I only need to save up 5% to buy the other ones. I'll acquire those rental properties quicker and that will be better. But with the 25% down one, it may take you longer to save up your down payment. But when you buy the property, presumably the economics are a little bit better because you put more down. So your cash flow is going to be better. And if your cash flow is better, that's going to help you save for the next property. And when you're putting 5% down in some markets, you're going to have some negative cash flow. You're going to have some deferred down payment because you didn't put enough down in those markets to have positive cash flow. So by having negative cash flow, it's actually slowing down how quickly you could save for the next property. There's some really interesting market dynamics going on as to which one of these is going to be better. And that's what we're going to find out today. We modeled this in over 300 US cities. I basically took the median price, what you could get for rent on that property, what the taxes, what the insurance would be, you know, what the appreciation rate would be, what the rent appreciation rate would be, what somebody might be earning in that particular marketplace. And I said, let's go ahead and model this head-to-head strategy of, should I put 25% down or should I do this nomad strategy? Of course, after you bought that owner occupant property with the 25% down. And now we're going to be able to see in each market Which one's better? And I will aggregate it all for you, but you're welcome to go drill down and look at your specific city to see if this would be better in your city or not. So... To clarify, in both scenarios, we're buying that owner-occupant property first. putting 5% down, we're going to buy an owner-occupant property. Part of the nomad strategy, that's normal. We're buying these 5% down owner-occupant properties repeatedly. We're buying those, moving in, living there for a year, and then converting to a rental. That's a little different than when you do the 25% down because we're saving up buying that owner-occupant property first. We're putting 5% down. Yes, we've got private mortgage insurance because um, you know when you don't put at, at least 20% down, the lender's like, hey, look, I want you to buy this third-party insurance policy in order to protect me in case you default. So yeah, we put 5% down, we've got PMI. And that is true whether you're doing the nomad strategy or you're putting you know, the, the 5% down to buy the owner-occupant when you're eventually gonna do the 25% down payments. When you do 25% down, you do not have PMI. You know, When you're buying the property and you're putting a full 25% down, that's more than 20%. And so the lender's like, I don't need PMI for that. But anytime you buy with 5% down, you will have PMI. Okay, so in both scenarios are buying that owner-occupant property first. In the baseline nomad strategy, we're saving up until you can buy a 5% down owner-occupant property, living there for at least a year, and until they've saved up to buy the next property, we're repeating this until they have 10 properties total, nine rentals, and one to live in. In some cases, they don't get to the full 10. You know, they end up either running out of time or they become financially independent before that, and then they may no, no longer qualify to buy ones. Now, realize... This is a really big, important difference. So like if you started zoning out a little bit, thinking about your own situation, which I do all the time, but if you're zoning out, thinking about your situation, this is important for you to understand. When you do the nomad strategy, the last property you purchase is the most expensive property you purchase and the last one to be paid off. And it's the one you're living in. You're living in that last property because you buy a property, you move in, you live there. Then once you've saved enough, you move into the next property, you convert the previous one to a rental, but you're moving in, you're always moving into that most expensive last property that you purchased. And that one happens to be the last one that gets paid off because we're not aggressively paying certain properties off in advance. We're letting them just get paid off naturally. So the last one you buy when you're getting 30 year mortgages is the last one to get paid off. This is important. Why? Because when you're putting 25% down, you know, when you're doing the 25% down strategy, the first property you buy is the one you live in forever. And that one gets paid off in almost all cases about 30 years from when you start. That's not true with doing the Nomad one. The one you live in doesn't get paid off until it's the last property you buy and then 30 years later. Why is this important? It's important because when we calculate if somebody is financially independent or not, if they have their owner-occupant property paid off, it means they don't need to cover that as an expense in order to be financially independent. It lowers the bar of what achieving financial independence is. If you needed $10,000 a month in order to be financially independent, and part of that included a $2,000 a month mortgage payment on a property you were living in, when you pay off the property that you were living in and you no longer have that mortgage payment, of course, you've got taxes and insurance and maintenance and all that other stuff, but the actual mortgage payment that you had to pay when you were living there, you no longer need to have that to cover in order to be financially independent. So instead of you needing $10,000 a month, if $2,000 a month of it was your mortgage payment, now, once you paid off your mortgage, you really only need $8,000 a month to be financially independent. And our software in our modeling does take that into account. So this difference between which property you're living in and when you bought it and when it gets paid off might just come into play. It might just be really important here, which you will probably see. I'll give you a hint. Because with the Baseline Nomad one, it's the last one you buy. When you do the 25% down one where you buy the the owner-occupant 5% down one first, it's the first one you buy. And that does get paid off about 30 years after you start. Very close to 30 years as soon as you start, okay? All right, so they, for baseline nomad, they buy the next property when they've saved enough for down payment, plus closing costs, plus six months of reserves for their personal expenses and six months of reserves for all the properties that they own, including the one they're about to buy. And they must also qualify for the loan based on a 45% debt to income ratio. Okay, so we are taking all that into account. So if you're buying properties and you're highly leveraged and they've got negative cash flow, that can slow you down. If that's hurting your debt to income ratio, whereas if you're buying 25 percent down properties and that is helping your debt to income ratio because it's got positive cash flow and it's pulling your debt to income ratio down, you know, it's making it lower, which is better. Then that helps you. So by buying the nomad strategy, but nomad properties in some markets where that has negative cash flow, it could limit when you buy your next property. Whereas when you put 25% down, that probably limits you less. In some cases, it actually helps you. It depends on the market and how good cash flow is in that market, how good the ratio, the economics of the property are, the ratio of the price to rent is, or the rent to price, depending on how you want to look at it, how you measure that, okay? All right, so that's the nomad one. For the 25% down one, they save up until they buy a 5% down owner-occupied property to live in, And they live in this property forever. That's the first property they buy. Then after that, they start saving up until they can buy a rental property with 25% down plus closing costs, plus six months of reserves for all their personal expenses and six months of reserves for all their other properties. And they can qualify for that loan based on the 45% debt to income ratio. And they repeat that until they buy up to nine rentals with 25% down each. Okay, if you want to see like the charts I'm about to show you and you want to drill down and mouse over them and do all that other stuff, you can go to the URL on the screen here. I'll put it in the show notes as well, okay? But if you want to go and see that, you can go look at that. All right, so we talked a little bit about this idea of being financially independent. So what makes somebody financially independent when we're doing our modeling? Well, the income from their investments need to exceed their personal expenses. That's the simple version. But what counts toward the income from their investments. Well, any net positive cash flow from rental properties counts. That's income minus all their real expenses, vacancy, principal interest, taxes, uh, PMI, uh, property insurance, maintenance management, all that stuff are expenses. So it's their net positive cash flow after all those expenses. That does count toward whether they're financially independent or not. Plus, any money that they have invested in the stock market or bonds or whatever else they got there, times a safe withdrawal rate. So if they've got a million dollars, in the they, they go through, they buy all their rental properties, and then they start saving up money in their bank account, in their stock market account in this case, because it's what we have their extra money invested in. But if they've got that invested in the stock market, then basically you take that money, let's say they have a million dollars, times a safe withdrawal rate. Let's say they, they think that 4% is their safe withdrawal rate. So it's 4% of the million dollars per year also counts toward them being financially independent. So, you know, a million dollars times 4% is about $40,000 a year. So, what is that? Like, uh, you know, $3,400 a month, somewhere in that ballpark, would be counting toward them being financially independent. That does count. And then, three other sources of passive income, which in this case did not come into play because we didn't model it. We didn't model Social Security. We didn't model them buying annuities. And we didn't model them getting a pension from their job. But those would also count towards someone being financially independent. All right. So, the assumptions. So, each city's modeling uses their median home price and the estimated rent on those properties. Now, it is important to realize, you know, I'm kind of known for these ADH strategies to improve cash flow. But we did not apply any of the ADH strategies to improve cash flow in this model. Now, we didn't try to maximize and optimize for cash flow here. We just said, look, you know, we're buying a median price home with median price rent. And so we're sort of just trying to determine if, that type of property is good. So, this isn't really like, you know, if you could do really amazingly well, this is sort of like, hey, if you just kind of show up in this marketplace and you buy just, you know, right off the shelf stuff and don't do any type of optimization, this is what is likely to happen. You know, we'll do future classes where we optimize things. where we buy at a discount or we get a premium in rent or we do you know a strategy where we can get a little bit higher cash flow we will do all those assumptions um you know all those kind of like analysis and comparisons in the future we're doing like one of these a week which for people on the podcast feels like one a month because we teach daily classes but we publish in a podcast once a month or once a week i'm sorry with some really rare exceptions so we are doing these and we will get through all of them. If you want to see there, a lot of them are done already, well, and you can go look on the website under the uh, realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model, M-O-D-E-L. You could see a lot of comparisons that we've already done. And I've got like a hundred that I plan on doing. So there's more coming, okay? Uh, the job income does vary based on the city so that they can afford property in that marketplace. You know, if I said everybody makes $5,000, you know the people in Los Angeles could not afford a property based on that. they never hit their debt to income ratio in order to hit a median price property. So someone in Los Angeles earns more money than someone in Mobile, Alabama, as an example. Okay. Um, however, when you earn more money, your personal expenses are higher, and so you need to overcome a higher hurdle in order to be considered financially independent. So to those who more is given more is expected in order for them to be financially independent. Even though they get a benefit, they're also handicapped in whether or not they are financially independent. So when you have a higher income, you need to exceed a higher level of return, a higher level of, uh, of dollars coming in, I guess it's a return, uh, in order to be financially independent. Okay? Um, so we talked about that. So we start with just enough money for a down payment to buy a 5% down owner-occupied property with some closing costs. So about 7% of the price of properties in their marketplace, we assume everyone starts with. So everyone starts with a slightly different amount of money. But it's enough for them to buy a owner-occupied property in that marketplace. For what I think is obvious reasons, right? If everyone started with 10K, then obviously the people in Los Angeles have been penalized. Whereas the people in Mobile, Alabama probably have an advantage. So what we did is we standardized that by making it so that everybody has 7% of what the property value in their marketplace is when we start. They're buying those owner-occupant properties with 5% down. And with Nomad, they keep moving out of it into the next owner-occupant. Now, interest rates. So when they're buying their owner-occupant properties, whether it's the first one for the 25% down group or the Nomad people where they're buying them over and over again, we assume that the interest rate, the mortgage interest rate that they can get right now is 6.5% with 5% down. And that does have, in addition to that 6.5%, it does have private mortgage insurance, as we discussed. When they're buying their rental properties, uh, their interest rate is um, 6.75. And in fact, I have a typo in here, so I'm going to correct that. So let's correct this now. When buying rentals, it is 6.75 or 25% down. All right, so continuing on. seven uh, percent per year of the stock market rate of return, that's what they're earning on money to have uh, sitting in their bank account waiting for investment somewhere else. And we did model this out for 100 years. And if you wanna see uh, any of my other assumptions, which there's a lot of assumptions here, um, go see real realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model. And you can see exactly what I use for this modeling. All right, so let's jump to it. So in terms of speed to financial independence, how quickly they achieve financial independence, which one is faster? Which one gets to financial independence faster? Doing the baseline nomad strategy or putting this, you know, buying this owner-occupant property and then buying 25% down? Well, in 230 of the 304 cities that we modeled this in, so 230, that's a little bit more than 70%. 70% 70%. 70% would be about uh, 210. So, you know, 70 something percent, maybe closer to 75%. So, about 75% of the cities, it was faster. They achieved financial independence faster by putting 25% down to buy their rentals. What? 75% of the time, about 75% of the time, 230 cities that it was faster for them to be financially independent by buying that owner occupant property and then putting 25% down, taking all that extra time in order to save up to buy rental properties, that ends up being faster. Yep, it does. However, 66 cities, about 20% of the time, it's faster to do Nomad. That's crazy. How do you know which one to do? Got to look at your city. Got to do the modeling. Got to look at the math. And I did it all for you. So it's not like you need to do it. You just need to go look. You know, pick your city, go drill down and say, is this better to do nomad in my market? Is it better to do 25% down? And then look at your situation and understand like the pros and cons and what's actually happening and why it was better. And maybe there's an exception. Maybe if you're, you know, optimizing for your cash flow, maybe it is a little bit better. Maybe if you decide to pay off your properties early, it's faster, right? You got to go look and see that. That's why we're doing all this analysis. That's why it's fun, okay? In eight cities, it didn't make a difference. They achieved financial independence in exactly the same month, whether they put 25% down or they did um, nomad. In eight cities, it doesn't matter, okay? So that's what was going on with there. So you can see, though, the breakdown of when this happens. The gray area is your 25% down. The red in the background is your baseline nomad. And one of the interesting things, remember I made that really big point out of, You know, when you do the 5% down and then you buy 25% down rentals, the property that you're living in as an owner-occupant is the first property you buy. So that property gets paid off after about 30 years. Well, what do you think is going on with this big line right here? There's a whole bunch of cases where what made the difference between you being financially independent or not was you paying off that owner-occupant property that you lived in. It just occurred naturally. Eventually, you no longer have a mortgage on the owner-occupant property you were living in. And when you do that, your threshold, the bar comes down for what it takes for you to be financially independent. So we see this huge spike when those mortgages get paid off. So that's what's going on. Eventually, someone ends up you know, having all these mortgages paid off, and that makes a huge difference for the 25% down group you'll notice that doesn't show up for the nomad group because they're constantly moving into another property. And so the last property they buy is the one they need to wait to get paid off when you do the nomad property, when you do the nomad strategy, okay? So another way of thinking about this is buying that owner-occupant property and letting it get paid off makes a huge difference in when you are financially independent, which we will cover in a future class we will do just a straight up comparison of 25% down where you buy an owner-occupant and 25% down where you don't buy an owner-occupant and maybe 20% down where you buy an owner-occupant and 25% down or 20% down where you do. 20% down where you do and don't buy an owner-occupant. And maybe we'll even do some other comparisons, some other interesting comparisons where you do that. So my uh, wife and my puppy have just walked past my backyard. Like we've got a like gate and open space and stuff. And they just walked by and I saw them. That was very, very snugly. Okay, so that's what's going on here. So you can look at it and see just how big of a difference this makes in some cases. The green dots show where 25% down was better by this number of months. The further away we are from this zero line, the better it was. So this, for example, this extreme dot here is about 125 months better. About 10 years faster for them to achieve financial independence. That's the extreme, right? There's a bunch though in the kind of five year point where it's about five years faster for them to be putting 25% down than doing the nomad strategy. And some of the nomad ones where, you know, nomad is faster than putting 25% down. You know, some of those are, you know, three years, you know, definitely two years is a big group here, where it's two years faster for them to have done nomad. And is it skewed where, you know, is it better to do the strategy? When you have higher priced houses, in my opinion, there seems to be a preference for um, when you put 25% down, that tends to be a better strategy with more expensive properties, right? This axis right here shows you how expensive the properties are. These are inexpensive properties over here. These are the more expensive properties over here. And you can see that it tends to be more green, better with 25% down when we get up into the more expensive properties. It's not exclusively, there's one that's almost a million dollars that was better to do Nomad, but it seems to be a pattern, a slight pattern that when you have more expensive properties, it tends to be a little bit better for 25% down. That's what the data suggests, okay? All right, so we talked about speed to getting to net worth. I'm sorry, speed to getting to financial independence. Now let's talk about net worth, you know, because it's two different things, right? There's how fast we get to FI, and then there's also how much money we got. You know, who has a higher net worth? And so it turns out in 168 cities out of 304, 168 cities, you have a higher net worth at year 40. It's kind of a snapshot in time. At year 40, you have a higher net worth by putting 25% down. 168 cities, which I think that's, let's see, 180 cities would be about uh, 60%, right? So it's a little bit less than 60%. So probably like the... 55% range you would have a higher net worth if you put 25% down in 127 cities you'd have a higher net worth if you nomad it so not as extreme now 40% of the cases a little bit less than 40% of the time it would be better for you from a net worth perspective to do nomad in about 55% of the cases it would be better for you to do 25% down so that's a little closer In 9% of the cities, or 9%, no, in nine cities, that's about, I don't know, 3%, it didn't make a difference. They had the same net worth at year 40. All right, so you can see the difference and how big the differences are. There are some big differences. There are some cases where it's, you know, $5 million difference at year 40 in net worth. So you got to go look at your city and see. All right, now we kind of summed up some of this data here. And we showed that on average, Okay, I've got average and median here. On average, it is 25.3 months faster for you to be financially independent by putting 25% down, by buying an owner-occupant property than saving up and doing 25% down to buy your rental properties. About two, a little bit more than two years faster on average. On median, median is when we take all the numbers, we stack them up from the lowest to the highest, and we look at the middlemost number There happens to be two. We take the average of the two middle ones. But we look at the middlemost number. And on median, it is 73 months faster for you to put 25% down. So what is that? That's like six years? Six years faster. Six years of if you happen to have a job that you really hate, that you didn't need to work because you were financially independent faster. What if I could save, this is like, sounds like the sleazy late night infomercial TV thing, right? Right. What if I could save you six years of working at that job that you hate just by changing the way that you acquire rental properties? That sounds so bad. Uh sounds so sleazy, right? What if I could save you six years? Yeah, that's really what it is, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about. If you do this 25% down, then you've on median, half the time, it's better than that. Half the time, it's worse than that. That's what median is. You know, it's better for you to put 25% down. Six years. It's a big difference. I mean, even on average, it's two years. I mean, think about it two years of not having to go into a job that you hate. Now, if you love the job, you can keep working, do whatever you want to do, right? Now, difference in net worth. So, on average, the difference is about $235,000. Not that big of a difference. On median, it's about $377,000. Okay. And on average, it's slightly better in terms of Nomad. On median, it's slightly better in terms of 25% down. So go figure. There are some really extreme cases with Nomad where it's much higher, and there are some cases where Nomad where it's not as good, (laughs) okay? Uh, Now, as far as risk goes, the risk I think varies a little bit, right? Because when you put 25% down, you end up having slightly lower risk with all the things associated with debt. You know, like your debt to income ratio tends to be a little bit better in general. Like you would think, right? Because you're putting, you're putting more down. So your debt to income should be a little bit better. So let's take a look. Debt to income. Yeah, debt to income is a little bit better on average for 25% down and a little bit better on median. But are we talking about like these monstrous differences? No, it's 19.6 versus 18%. I'm sorry, 19.6 versus 18 for the difference between median and average. It's 30% debt to income average for baseline nomad versus 19.6. So not insignificant, yeah, not horribly bad. What about debt to net worth? Well, same thing. Whenever we're talking about debt, you're probably gonna see that 25% down is better because you have less debt. You're putting more down in general. And your debt to your account balance, your liquidity, well, when you have more money because you didn't put enough down, you didn't put you didn't put more down for the 5% down nomad, you tend to have a little bit more liquidity. So the amount of debt you have compared to your bank balance, a little bit better for nomad. Then months of reserves, we looked at that, and then rent resiliency. We'll cover those another thing. But the the like risk measures are split. It's not universally better one way or another. Okay. In some ways it's better to do nomad, some ways it's better to do 25% down. All right. So Remember, we've been talking about the median property and sort of like the associated rent that goes along with this. You could apply those ADH strategies to improve cash flow and improve on these. So you shouldn't think, you know, this is exactly how I will do. I mean, you'll, it'll never be exactly how you will do because there's no way that things will fall into place and be exactly the same. I just watched this documentary on uh, Infinity. And they were talking about how, you know, there's an infinite number, if, if, imagine, hypothetically, theoretically, there was an infinite number of universes where an infinite number of us existed. In that case, with an infinite number of us, you could possibly achieve this exact simulation, this exact model. But in this universe, not likely. The chance of property prices going up exactly 3% and interest rates remaining exactly at you know, 6.5 or 6.75, depending on which one you're buying for the entire hundred years that you were doing this and you got managed to get that, and taxes and insurance went up by that exact number every time. I mean, the chance of all that happening is like zero. Okay. So we're basically using this median price property, what rent might be on those. You should be able to choose and do better, right? And we do some modeling where we do those improvements. You can see the impact. You know, go look at the real estate financial planner.com forward slash model, or we'll do future classes where we compare those different things. But realize that I am not an expert at, you know, 300 markets. So if you are an expert at your local market, if you go to real estate forward slash model and you see my assumptions, you're like, James, you know, your assumptions for my market are not exactly right. I mean, normally we'd be buying properties that are, you know, 10% less in price or, you know, getting a little bit better rent to price ratio than what you're talking about here. Yeah, let me know, reach out via email. I will go update those. I'll rerun it and it will update all these charts. It won't update them in the video, but it will update them on the website so you could see the most up-to-date versions. And that may change things for some folks, right? Not every market, but in some markets could change things. So reach out and I'm not trying to show The best case, right? I'm not trying to show the property that only you could buy once every seven years because it's so good that they only show up once every seven years. I want to do what the average Joe real estate investor, and Joe could be male or female, shows up in a marketplace and does. You know, what could they very likely achieve by just showing up there that any real estate investor in that market could expect to achieve? And I have a typo. (laughs) So I will do that, good expects to achieve, okay. So in conclusion, in our current market conditions, current price, current interest rates, current rents, in about 300 plus US markets, using what I consider to be less than ideal median price rent properties, putting 25% down is a faster path to financial independence in about 230 of 304 cities, or about 76% of the cities. For net worth, 25% down, still wins, but it's only in 168 cities of 304. The market does matter though. You would not be able to improve, you'll not be able to improve your time to financial independence in every market by doing this. You got to look at your market, your specific situation, how much you make, how much you're saving, what type of properties you're buying, like all that stuff can really have an impact, especially when it's close. It's best if you look closer at your specific market and apply as many of the 88 cash flow improving strategies as practically possible to improve on your own implementation of this. You can go check out realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model for more information. So that's all I got. hope you enjoyed this class. You know, I really do like these classes because I think it dispels some of the myths out there about folks saying, oh, it's obviously better. You always put 25% down. Maybe it's always better. You always do nomad. That's going to be so much better. Maybe you got to actually look at the math. And now we could see if we do this in 305 markets or 304 markets or whatever it is, we could see the difference of what is likely to happen. There you go. That's all I got for you. This has been James Orr. I hope you have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up but